When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. My name is Carl Rylett and today I'll be continuing the story of the First World War. This is part 10 and covers the fighting on the Western Front in 1914. On the eve of the Great War, the Austrian writer Stefan Zweig was taking a holiday near the Belgian port of Ostend, where he remembered the mood was as carefree as every other summer. Quote, Visitors enjoying their holiday lay on the beach in brightly coloured tents or bathed in the sea. The children flew kites and young people danced outside the cafes on the promenade laid out on the harbour wall. End quote and he remarked how the people of various nationalities mixed peacefully. Overnight, however, the mood darkened as news came through of threats of mobilisation across the continent. Quote, A cold wind of fear was blowing over the beach, sweeping it clean. End quote. Like many others, Stefan Zweig packed up hastily and rushed homeward by train, finding it difficult to believe that Europe's peace had ended so quickly and so finally. The declarations of war were met by some of the public with great enthusiasm. On the 2nd of August in St Petersburg, Winter Palace Square, an enormous crowd gathered with flags, banners, icons and portraits of the Tsar. When Nicholas II appeared at the balcony, the entire crowd at once knelt and sang the Russian national anthem. The day before, a similar crowd had gathered in the Odeonsplatz in Munich, in Bavaria, to hear the proclamation of mobilisation. And in Berlin, the Kaiser appeared on his palace balcony, dressed in a filled grey uniform, to address a great crowd. Quote, a fateful hour has fallen upon Germany. Envious people on all sides are compelling us to resort to a just defence. The sword is forced into our hands. And now I command you all to go to church, kneel before God and pray to him to help our gallant army. There were to be similar scenes elsewhere, including in Paris, where it was the departure of the city's regiments which brought forth the crowds. The main clash of the war was on the borders of France and Germany, and in Belgium. The German main thrust was the advance of their first and second armies across the Belgian border, sweeping across the Belgian plains and plunging deep into northern France. The neighbouring third army would pass through the Belgian Ardennes region, while the fourth and fifth would advance through Luxembourg and the French Ardennes. 
This meant that five whole armies would be used to try and overwhelm the French left flank, while the German 6th and 7th armies would stand fast in Alsace-Lorraine. The German infantry was equipped with a bolt-action rifle, an accurate weapon capable of a reasonable speed of fire. Their trump card was the heavy field artillery, the howitzers, which with their longer range had the potential to overwhelm the field artillery of their opponents. The French army was also extremely powerful, although a prevailing conservatism had prevented attempts to introduce a modern camouflage uniform. The infantry wore bright red trousers and blue jackets, unchanged since the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, and they were not as well trained as their German opponents. The Belgians were determined to defend their neutrality against the Germans as best they could. In 1913 they introduced conscription and increased the size of their army. They also strengthened their great fortresses at Liège and Namur, which guarded the crossings of the river Moise, some 20 miles from the German frontier. Each fortress consisted of a circle 25 miles in circumference of independent forts, arranged at a suitable distance to protect the city itself from protection and to lend each other protection of their own guns. The Germans realised the importance of capturing Liège quickly, for it blocked their advance into Belgium. Also, as a key rail hub, it was essential for the supply of troops passing through the country. However, they found themselves confronted by 32,000 men with 30 machine guns and 150 artillery pieces, garrisoning the 12 forts encircling the city, or manning hastily dug earthworks outside. The bloodiness of the fighting and frustration at the delay contributed to a feature which would mark this operation and others later on. German soldiers, shocked and disorientated by their first experience of modern warfare, became convinced that they were being ambushed by the local inhabitants. Seeing saboteurs even when they did not exist, German troops took and shot an estimated 5,000 Belgian civilians and indiscriminately set fire to buildings, including those of the medieval University of Louvain. Exaggerated reports of their atrocities reached Britain, confirming public support of a war against German militarism. This so-called rape of Belgium did the reputation of Germany untold harm, particularly in the United States, where the reputation of the Kaiser and his government were blackened from the outset by reports of massacres and cultural vandalism. German howitzers battered the Belgian fortresses into submission, the last surrendering on the 16th of August. The delay was only a few days, but was crucial with the tight deadlines of the Germans, and their determined resistance would act as an encouraging example to the Allies in the weeks and months ahead. In the meantime, the French opened their campaign in the south by invading Alsace-Lorraine, and on the 19th of August they captured the town of Mulhouse. Their campaign was more to satisfy public opinion back in France than for strategic purposes, and the Germans pushed the offensive back after particularly heavy fighting. 
The commander-in-chief of the French forces, Joseph Joffre, redirected some of his troops further north for another offensive into the Ardennes region. He failed to appreciate the extent of the threat to his left flank and became fixed on trying to break through the German centre. A series of encounter battles that ensued on the 22nd of August were bloody affairs, set in wooded hilly terrain and with poor visibility caused by fog. When the French advanced, they found the Germans dug in on the forward edge of thick woods. The French soldiers, standing out in their blue and red uniforms, were mowed down in their thousands. There was widespread chaos, and the French nearly found themselves enveloped on both flanks, which would have been a disaster for the whole French army. The Germans demonstrated that they were more tactically astute, better equipped, and more skilled than their opponents, and they also made good use of aircraft to identify French artillery. The 24-year-old Lieutenant Charles de Gaulle summed up the experience for the French soldiers. Quote, Suddenly the army's fire became more precise and concentrated. Second by second the hail of bullets and the thunder of the shells grew stronger. Those who survived lay flat on the ground amid the screaming wounded and the humble corpses. With affected calm, the officers let themselves be killed, standing upright. Some obstinate platoons stuck their bayonets in their rifles, bugles sounded the charge, isolated heroes made fantastic leaps, but all to no purpose. In an instant it became clear that not all the courage in the world could withstand this fire. The Battle of the Frontiers, as it became known from the 7th of August to the 6th of September 1914, was a disaster for the French army, who suffered casualties of more than 200,000, of which over 75,000 were dead. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Meanwhile, the British Expeditionary Force were making their way to the front. 
With just four divisions, they were an extremely small force for a great power. Although dismissed by the German Kaiser as a contemptible little army, they were highly professional and well equipped with their elite Enfield rifles, but were lacking when it came to heavy artillery. They were led by General Sir John French, who had enjoyed success as a cavalry leader in the Boer War before being promoted to Chief of Imperial General Staff. The 1st and 2nd Divisions were commanded by General Sir Douglas Haig, who had fought in the Sudan and Boer Wars. Their first contact with the enemy came at a Belgian coal mining town called Mons, close to the French border. The British soldiers were rushed into the line and had barely taken up their positions when they were attacked. While several of the battalions fought well, the historian John Hart writes how the Germans manoeuvred skillfully to secure a local superiority against the weak points in the British defences. Throughout, the Germans handled their artillery and machine guns with tactical dexterity, born of long practice, operating them in tandem to dominate the British in the firefight. The British were forced to retreat, and though initially planned as a simple tactical withdrawal, and executed in good order, the British retreat from Mons lasted for two weeks and took them to the outskirts of Paris. General Joffre had to continually adapt his plans as he hoped initially to stop the withdrawal on the River Somme. But when this was no longer feasible, it was the River Marne which became the place where the French and British would make their stand. The Germans' rapid advance had brought problems. As would often occur in advances made by all sides in this war, their lines of communication became severely stretched, making it difficult to supply troops at the front. Another difficulty was that the Russians had mobilised faster than expected and were already gaining ground in East Prussia. Troops, therefore, had to be withdrawn from the Western fronts and hurried eastwards. General Joffre, meanwhile, outlined the strategy which involved a concentration of Allied forces at the town of Amiens, 25 miles north of Paris, and an attempt to encircle the enemy's right wing. In a major reorganisation, 54 French commanders were fired, and brutal discipline, including summary execution, were used to enforce order among the demoralised troops. Meanwhile, the commander of the 1st German Army, General Alexander von Kluck, decided that instead of continuing on past Paris to the west and attempting an encirclement as per the Schlieffen plan, he would order his men in a south-easterly direction in pursuit of the retreating French. This is often described as a major miscalculation and exposed von Gluck's right flank. Joffre took immediate advantage of the enemy's mistake and counter-attacked on the 6th of September, beginning the Battle of the Marne. The German right wing became outnumbered by French divisions rushing up from the south. As the German 1st Army tried to turn to face the assault from the French 6th Army, a huge gap opened up between von Kluck and the 2nd Army on his left flank, into which were sent the British. This forced the Germans to hastily retreat back behind the river Aina. General Moltke at this point suffered a nervous collapse, and was replaced in command of the German armies 
by the Minister of War, Eric von Falkenhayn. Falkenhayn understood the importance of gaining victory before winter set in, so rushed every unit he could lay hands on to rescue what he could of the Schlieffen plan by trying to outflank the Allies to the north. The next phase of the fighting has often been described as the race to the sea. This was actually a series of outflanking manoeuvres in which both sides sought to get round the northern flank of their opponent. The German and French forces exchanged blows, neither able to find a knockout punch. The logistical challenges were phenomenal, as whole armies were consigned to overstretched railways and then pushed on from the railheads down crowded roads. At each offensive, the soldiers on both sides dug in and held out, gaining time for reinforcements to be brought up. So the line solidified and attention turned to the next section to the north. Clashes occurred around the River Somme in late September, Arras in early October and later on around Ypres, a small Belgian market town. By the end of the year, battle lines extended all the way from Belgium in the north to the Swiss border in the south, a front which would not shift dramatically for the next four years. In December, both sides attempted exploratory attacks, often designed to straighten the line of defence or to secure a tactically significant position, but with no major success. By the end of the year, the French army controlled 77 of the Republic's 90 departments, and after riding out an initial defeat in battle, sustained its cohesion and drove the enemy away from its capital. The war was set on a grim path of attritional fighting, and with both sides able to draw on millions more men, it became virtually impossible to secure an easy victory. A stalemate was reached, the dreadful realisation set in that the combatants would be in this for the long haul. My name is Card Rydert, and you've been listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles Podcast. Feel free to leave comments on the Facebook page, or you can write to me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net. It's always great to hear from you. Next week, I will switch from the Western Front to the Eastern Front, where the armies of Russia, Serbia, Austria and Germany are all fighting equally as hard. I hope you can join me then. Until then, all the best and goodbye. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.